Thank you for checking out the Mercy Hill Church Sermon Podcast. If you would like to know more about Mercy Hill, you can visit us on the web at mercyhill.cc. Open up your Bible, whether it's in paper, whether that's an app you're opening, uh, to James chapter 4. We're going to look at verses 1 and 2. And as you're opening that up, uh, it may not surprise you, the author of the book of James was named... James, very good. And it's one example of a question in church where the answer isn't Jesus. <laughs> but, but James was, as best we know, uh, one of the brothers of Jesus who came to faith in Christ after Jesus' own resurrection and, and probably a personal visit from his older brother. And James became a senior leader in the church in Jerusalem. And, and this letter, this book of James, reads a, a lot like a collection of wisdom literature, like the book of Proverbs, with some prophetic literature mixed in. It doesn't read like some of Paul's letters that are written specifically to a particular church in a particular situation to deal with particular issues. Instead, it's a general letter, a collection of some wisdom that's being shared broadly with a bunch of different churches. And and so what it says to them, it's also saying to us. And James chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 say this. What causes fights and quarrels among you? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? You desire, but you don't have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask God. And I'd like to draw our attention to to something that's maybe obvious enough to overlook. Uh, And it's just this. You know, when we spend eight months or so going through the series called The Story, where we've been looking at the broad redemptive narrative through history of thousands of years of God reaching out to his people and seeing that God is in control. He created everything, but humans were rebellious. We've turned away from God, yet God loves us, and he's on mission to bring us back to himself. You know, sometimes we can see the big picture so much that we fail to remember that God cares about the details of our relationships. It it matters to God whether we're getting along with the people who are close to us or whether we're fighting and quarreling in our homes, in our relationships here in church, in our neighborhoods, at work, and so on. And so here in the midst of what's really a general letter to many churches, we see God's concern for how we get on in our relationships and our God's concern that we actually interact in harmony with each other. And so it's not all big glory of God among the nations and what's happening in other parts of the world and how God's moving through history in the big picture. Look, he cares about your conversation at the dinner table. He he cares about how when you get home from work, you treat each other. He cares about the kind of person you and I are when we're working with each other in a pressured environment. And it's in here Still in John 14. That was, a, that was a good word John brought us this morning, wasn't it? Just about the, the value of enjoying the Lord. And, and so it's embedded here in James chapter 4, not because James was writing to a particular church that was having all kinds of conflict and division, but because it's an issue that every one of us faces. You know, and and if, you, if you're new to church or you've recently been coming to church, it may have caught you by surprise 
that church is also a place where there's fights and quarrels. Because James is writing to Christians, and Christians, well, as we said, aren't, always, aren't all superheroes, certainly. Uh, we're not perfect people. We're forgiven people through the grace of God in Jesus Christ our Lord. And unfortunately, it means Christians also sometimes fight. Nice Christian families. Though that couple who's sitting next to you that looks really lovey and happy and always nice, they probably fight sometimes too. And it happens in church and the word of God is not shy about it. And James is bringing, if you will, the spotlight of scripture, the revelation of God's word into an area that many times we'd just rather ignore, pretend it didn't happen or try to patch up as quick as we can and get on with it. Glory to God, hallelujah, praise the Lord. But God has a better way. He really does. And it's not just constant repetitive cycles of sin and forgiveness. It's transformation. It's that Christ himself can be formed in us so that there's change. And so why don't we just pray together and then we'll break into it a little more. Father, we are so grateful for your grace to us in Jesus Christ. Lord, we say now in prayer the very thing we sang as we started this morning. Lord, we need you. Lord, I need you. Lord, I need you every day and every hour. Thank you so much, Father, for sending your son to be our substitute and the ransom for our sins. Lord, we confess this morning that we are not immune from this issue, this trouble, this sin of fighting and jealousy and of failing to look to you with our own desires. Lord, help us now through your word and your spirit to see it differently and particularly, Lord, to see you so that by beholding you, we'd be changed. Amen. James is giving us just a remarkable revelation to what goes on inside us. He says, why do you fight? What causes fights and quarrels among you? He says, isn't it your own desires that are already fighting on your insides? He's saying what's happening is the external conflicts are a reflection of an internal conflict. Another way of thinking that is they're a boil over. Uh, the fights on the outside are a boil over of the fights and struggles that are happening on the inside. James is saying that the cause of arguments, fights, quarrels, conflicts, difficulties that we have in our relationships is not somehow outside of me, but is actually originating from inside me instead. It, it's not the, that crazy way that guy is driving. That's the problem. It, it's not the habits and behaviors of my in-laws. It's actually in here. The battle is going on first in me, and it's the unresolved internal battle that's boiling over into my relationships. The, the imagery James uses reminds me of a volcano. Because what's a volcano? How does a volcano happen and work? You've got all this hot, molten rock and stuff churning under the surface, under pressure, and then it blows out at a weak spot. Somewhere where the surface is thin and there's some cracks that emerge and boom, up it comes from underneath. And James is saying, look, you and I, we've got this hot, molten stuff on the inside. 
we've got these battles of our desires churning inside. And under pressure, the heat increases and it blows out somewhere at a weak spot. Maybe because somebody poked it and there was a crack and boom, it wasn't the, the origin. It was just in a sense, the spot where it blew out and erupted. You know, it explains why we blow up at people who aren't really the direct cause of the things we're upset about, but they end up being kind of the lightning rod for where it happens. You've had a bad day at work and there's so much pressure and you couldn't get everything done and you, you don't, you're just all churned up inside. You get home, you yell at your, wife, your spouse and your kids. Uh, it wasn't really because of them, but it's the battle that's on the inside erupting and coming out. And friends, what's happening is we're causing collateral damage to the people around us from unresolved battles on our own insides. And the first step to overcoming the problem is to recognize that the people I'm fighting with aren't actually the problem. The people that I'm having a fight or a quarrel with, the, the relational overflow isn't the real source of the problem. The real problem is my own internal battles. It's about my own desires. And so James says, what causes it? Don't they come from your desires that battle within you? And he talks about what happens when we leave those unresolved. He says, you, you, you want something, but you don't get it. You kill and you covet, and you can't have what you want. You quarrel and fight. You don't have because you don't ask God. You know, the solution is not as simple as saying, Hey, as long as I just get whatever I want, it's going to be fine. I, 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 that's, I mean, we see that at home. We have, we have two great daughters. They're really good girls. Uh, some of you have more than that, and so the, the relational challenges get multiplied. Uh, but we have like a, a little test tube, a laboratory with just two operators going on in the sister-sister relationship. And, and as long as they're both getting what they want, it's really happy. It's good. You know, as long as I'm getting what I want, I'm really nice to be around. But when the desires of one sister are in conflict with the desires of the other sister, it gets a little less happy. And it gets less happy because sometimes you can't have both. Now, we imagine to ourselves that that's the problem. You and what you want are a threat to me and what I want. But James says something different's going on. He says, I have desires fighting inside me. I have incompatible, irreconcilable desires on my own inside. And you can't give me everything I want because I want things that are mutually exclusive, no matter what you do about it. Unrestrained desire is not a solution. It's the problem. Uh, and within us, we've got, it's like we've got big picture desires and little detail focused desires. If you will, we've got macro desires and micro desires. Like macro desires, they're like the big long-term goals. I want to become more like Jesus. I want to get married someday and have children. I want, and, and it's a desire that's not specific to a moment, but it's a general desire about who I want to become, the things I want to be able to do in general. Those are big picture desires. And, and then, 
you know, I want to have a healthy relationship with my kids, these things. And then there's micro desires. They're like these right now demanding wants. You know, I want to be able to, I want to be able to watch the game without any interruptions. Why can't you be more patient? I want 10 minutes just to be by myself away from the kids now that you're home, right? Uh, these are right now sort of desires. You know, hey, I want to get a new sofa. Yeah, it's a big different thing than I want to go to college for four years and then be able to have a certain kind of career. Have you noticed that it tends to be these little micro desires, these right now demands that are the places where we boil over? in our relationships. And one of the reasons for that is often our own internal right now micro desires are in conflict with our own macro desires. I, I want to become so much more generous. I want to be able to give richly. When, when Johnny says up front that we've got an opportunity to buy some cows for Zimbabwe, I don't want to just put in a few bucks. I'd love to be able to get a whole cow and be able to, to move in generosity. When there's a team going to India, I want to be able to sponsor somebody and help. You've got a desire to say, I want to become more generous. I want to give more to Mercy Hill Church. I want to be able to live in a way that isn't defined by, do we have anything left at the end of the month, but really has Jesus at the priority of my finances. But at the same time, you may also have a number of competing desires on the inside. Got to have my Starbucks every morning in my way. And the, and the cable package has got to have ESPN Ocho on it. And, you know, and then there's a new sofa, and they've got a new iPhone out now, and plus versus regular size. And the desires that we have have conflicts, and often they're incompatible with each other. And these conflicts can boil over into our relationships. You know, I don't want to trivialize it with these things, but the stakes are so high in this. The stakes are high. James says, look, you, you desire, you want something, but you don't get it. And then he says, he says, so what do you do about that? He says, you kill. Now, I don't think he's speaking literally about physical murder. The context is really about fights and quarrels and arguments. But metaphorically speaking, he's showing us that the stakes are really high. He's saying, you kill and covet. Excuse me? Why, how do you put those together, James? You know, how, do you, how do you compare murder and a little bit of jealousy? I just want a new phone. Uh, but he does. He does it. Now, pastorally speaking, James is like an army drill sergeant. All right? uh, not the most gentle and compassionate pastor that you're going to get a letter from. He's speaking very sharply right into the heart of our own desires and situations. And he compares what we do about our desires to killing. And that means it's really high stakes. When we get angry and we use words that wound to other people, we can kill a relationship. Your marriage can bleed to death from the word, cutting words that you use when you're not getting what you want. That's what Jesus said. Jesus said, you've heard it said... Thou shalt not kill. But I say to you, if any of you become angry with your brother and you start saying these things to him, you're, you're guilty of murder. Because we can kill each other. We can kill our relationships. You can kill your relationship with your kids, with your spouse, with your coworkers, by having the conflict of your own desires 
be unresolved and boiling over to others. So how do we change? How are we going to move from having a little volcano on the inside to actually being more like Jesus and having healthy, being a blessing, being a spring of living water to people around us instead of a fountain of lava? Well, James shows us this. He says, you don't have because you don't ask God. The proper direction for our desires is towards God. Hello? The proper direction for our desires is towards God. The churning and the battle of desires in us is often because those desires lack their God-given direction. The proper direction for our desires is towards God. Now, you think, well, that's obvious if my desire is, I want to know him better. I just want to grow in my enjoyment of God. Of course, that's a Godward desire. But what about all the stuff I want? What about what I want to do with my time? What do I... The proper direction of all our desires is still towards God. Let, let me put a more specific point on that for some of us here. Some of us, you're, you're struggling in these issues because you're expecting somebody else to give you what only God can give you. And God's the only one who can do it. Your spouse can't make you happy. Your parents can't give you the freedom that you think you're supposed to have. Only God can settle the issue for you. Only God can be the one who is satisfying, who is sufficient, who is adequate for your dreams and your desires. Only God can. And if in your relationships, you're trying to find that satisfaction or that freedom or that sufficiency from somebody else, they will inevitably frustrate and upset you because the proper direction of your desires is Godward. It's towards God himself. Don't let the battle of the desires inside you become a battle with your brothers and sisters here in the church, your family members, your parents, or the people around you. Learn to turn your desires Godward to find genuine victory in the way they wrestle with each other. Um, I think one of the challenges that we face in really doing that is that we haven't learned how to pray through our desires and what it looks like or means to actually take our desires to the Lord. Um, My mother had a stroke on Thursday. And I have really appreciated in these last few days so many really sincere, loving, caring, well-meaning friends who've all said, hey, we're, we're praying for your mom or we're praying for you. And, and some of the folks who've told me, oh, we're praying. I know, I know they're not actually believers who have a solid relationship with the Lord. And they're not saying, I am confidently approaching the throne of grace where God is in heaven, ruling over all things, and he's going to give you all the grace you need for this. They're kind of saying instead, boy, I hope this turns out okay, and I'm going to kind of toss some hopes heavenward in things. And, and you know what? I still appreciate it. I really do, because it's still a sincere expression of care, and I know God has it in control. But when it comes to battling through and winning in the battle of our own desires, that kind of just hopeful tossing something up to heaven thing, it is inadequate 
for you changing and winning these kind of battles. We have got to find a way of wrestling in prayer where we take our own desires, not as just a wish list or a set of hopes to heaven, but make them an offering of devotion to the one who is worth it all, to the one who is adequate to satisfy all of my desires and meet all of my needs and fix every situation and be good even in the situations that I don't see getting fixed and to wrestle with every competitive desire and dream to make sure Jesus is supreme in all of it. There is no more important place for you to learn to wrestle in prayer than in the area of submitting our own desires and hopes and dreams to the Lord himself. It's not just some spiritual discipline or, or something for extra spiritual people who want to get extra holy. James is showing us that it has a direct impact on the relationships that matter most to us. And if we are going to actually see kind of those big level macro desires of having fruitful relationships where we're reflecting Jesus to the people around us be a reality. If we're really going to enjoy the Lord and see it happen, let's learn a lesson from James and take it seriously enough to say, I have got to learn to bring my desires to the Lord and not just have them wrestling on my insides. Amen? Amen. I said, this is, this is what helps me. God reveals himself in scripture to us to be completely adequate in every way. I want to just share with you four truths about who God is and how it affects us in these, this specific area. Listen, God is great. God is glorious. God is good. And God is gracious. We, we find that Father, Son, and Holy Spirit Together, uniquely one God, yet revealed in three persons, is very great. God is great. And God is glorious. And God is good. And God is gracious. Now, that's not a formulation that I came up with. It. I think Tim Chester published it out of the UK some years back. But watch how it applies in an area as practical as our own desires. The revelation of who God is, is what gives us life and breath day after day. God is great. And you know what that means? You know what it means to me that God is great? It means I don't have to be in control. It means that I don't have to white knuckle my way through every situation, trying to ensure that it all turns out the way that I think it must, because God is great. And there is nothing that passes out of his control. Whether it's cancer, Liz, whether it's a stroke in someone that you love, whether it's that I've lost my job or the car had an accident or needs repairs and I don't see the money coming from anywhere, God is great. And he, not me, is in control. God is glorious. There is no glory that compares with the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. There's no other glory. I don't have to look somewhere else besides him to find satisfaction and fulfillment in my life. Because no matter where I look, I can't find anything better than the glory of my risen Savior, Jesus. I can't find any 
thing more fulfilling or more delightful or more enjoyable than the presence and power of the risen Lord, rich and close to us. I, I remember a time, this was about, this was about five years ago uh, when my wife left me. Uh, Karen, sorry, Karen, excuse me, Karen was going on a medical mission trip to Zambia for three weeks. And our kids were each five years younger, five years ago, than they are today. That happens, doesn't it? Yeah. And, and so they were a lot younger. And, and I had just had surgery. And so I, I am lying in the lazy boy, borrowed from a, from a good friend, thank God for friends. Uh, and Karen leaves for three weeks in Africa. Now, eight or nine months earlier, Karen had been invited to go on that medical mission team. Uh, and I had a, a very straightforward, very spiritual response. It was, no. You don't even have to pray about that. It's too expensive. It's too far away. It's too much time away from me and the kids. And, uh, and I, don't, I can't cope with trying to have another continent on our heart. We've got our hands full with everything right now. So don't even pray about it. You're not even going. And, and God had intervened over those months. And sure enough, she was going. And I had thought it was a good idea until we were getting up close to the time. And I had surgery and uh, we had a lot going on. She, her contract at work had come to an end. She wasn't renewing it. So while she was in Africa, she was going to be unemployed and we didn't know what was going to happen. So she, she was setting out into professional limbo. And, and I was sitting in a lazy boy, really primed to start feeling sorry for myself because I'm in pain. I can't even sleep in my bed. What I want is for her to be taking care of me and making sure the children aren't a pressure and all these other things. And yet, in, that mo- in those moments, that's where the presence and the power of the Lord Jesus matters so much. Because there's nothing better, just right there in the lazy boy, when I can't do any of the things that I think of as making me productive or useful in God. I wasn't, I wasn't able to write any you know, profound teaching messages or lessons for anybody. I wasn't preaching to anybody. I wasn't going to the office or doing anything. But right in a lazy boy, the pleasure of the Lord Jesus in just being my all in all is unmatchable. God is glorious. Even when we're at our least, he's at his most. When we're at our weakest, he's at his strongest. God is glorious. So I don't have to look somewhere else for satisfaction. It silences the competing desires that are warring inside of me, that want to claim and say, you won't be happy unless you have this. Because there's a better word that says Jesus is enough for me. God is great. God is glorious. God is good. God is good enough that even when I don't understand How come things are happening the way they're happening? How come things are working out a different way than I think they should work out? I know. Paul says in Romans 8, we are convinced. We are persuaded. We have an experiential conviction that our God works it all for good. The reason I know my God works it all for good is that's who he is, not just what he does. It's not just a hope that somehow God will make it right. God is right. God is good. 
and all things will come into conformity with who he is. God is good. And so I can trust him no matter what is happening. I don't have to be in control. I don't have to chase other fulfillment or approval from other people. I don't have to freak out when things aren't happening the way I want them to. He's good. I can trust him. Even if what's happening today is, isn't good. In what, remember, we're talking in the story, the lower story and the upper story. The lower story may be bad. It may be downright not good. There's nothing intrinsically good about cancer. There's nothing intrinsically good about oppression, persecution, and suffering. But God is able to bring his goodness richly into this world, invading the world through the doorway of suffering and things that are bad to bring the kingdom of heaven into the kingdoms of this world. And brothers and sisters, God who is great, God who is glorious, God who is good, 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 is gracious. God is gracious, so I have nothing to prove. God is gracious. That means failure is not final. Failure is not final. It means his grace is greater than my mistakes and my sin. It means that God's grace is greater than even the damage that I've already done and that you may have already done in your relationships by the boil over of these unresolved desires. We can ask God. We can ask God. There's an open invitation from heaven because Jesus came to earth. He gave his life on a cross. He died and he rose again. He's seated at the right hand of the Father. He is a sympathetic high priest for you and for me who is right now continuing to intercede for us before the Father. We can boldly approach his throne of grace to receive mercy and help, to even quiet the clamor of these deceitful desires to help us gain what's most precious and what matters most. Now, our God is all in all. Corey, Brooke, could you guys come on up and lead us? Do we have communion this morning? Yes? We're going to be sharing communion together now, and John, if you could, if you guys could come and bring that up. We have a moment now where we can, in a genuine way, not, you know, theology only matters when it gets from here into here for us. Uh, It doesn't change the truth of it, but it's possible to live a life where our theology and our heart are so disconnected that we don't get transformed. And I'm urging and inviting us this morning to ask the Holy Spirit to help make a rich connection between the eternal truths of who God is and the way that we wrestle in our own desires and can become a blessing in our relationships. Parents, I urge you, Help your children understand these dynamics and how the Lord matters in the center of our own desires. How we can trust the Lord with the things that matter most to us, whether it's in the big picture of our future or in the moments of pressure where I just feel like I have to get what I want. Because here we have the display of Jesus saying to the Father, not my will, but yours be done of Jesus resolving the battle of will, Jesus resolving the battle of desire by submitting himself to the Father and saying, I want nothing more and nothing less than your will, O Lord. As we share communion today, the the Bible teaches us that this is a remembrance, that we're looking back. Jesus said, do this in remembrance of me, that Jesus' body was broken 
and his blood was shed for the forgiveness of sins. Equally, Paul teaches us that the body and blood of Jesus Christ are a participation for us today. It's not merely a symbol of something that happened in the past. There's a moment of participation in the grace of God that each of us can share today through faith in Jesus Christ. And thirdly, this bread and this cup is a proclamation. This is a proclamation of Christ's death, resurrection, and coming return. And brothers and sisters, there is nothing that clarifies my desires like knowing that Christ is risen, Christ is coming again. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, Lord, we confess the many ways that our our desires often become like little gods to us, where we find ourselves serving the demands that speak loudest within our own hearts and failing to respond to your whispered presence. Lord Jesus, now, before we go out and get on with other things for the day and for the week, we pause say, oh Lord, we want you in first place. Lord Jesus, thank you that on the night you were betrayed, you took the bread, you broke it, and you gave thanks. Lord Jesus, we thank you that what you resolved in the garden, you made real at the cross. And Lord, today, we equally, we likewise offer ourselves. Say, Lord, we belong to you. Not to have our own way, not to have our own will, not to have our own direction or dreams for our lives, but trusting, Lord, that your will and your ways are better than anything we could invent ourselves. Lord, that the plans you have for us are better than what we could design or desire on our own. Lord, we proclaim that you are great and you are glorious and you are good you are gracious. So Lord, we rely on the broken body and shed blood of our risen Savior. That you are our sufficiency. That you are all in all to us. Thank you in your precious name, Jesus. Amen. Go ahead and take the bread and the cup.